rose early to seek God and found him who my soul loveth. Who would not rise early to meet such company? That was a journal entry written on February 24th by 19th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane. You likely get tired of me quoting from this man because I do it a lot. But in a very short life, he died when he was only 29 years old. He casts a big shadow. He never wrote a book. He didn't accomplish much earthly success. Even in his own life, his church, he prayed for revival for a long time. Then he left for a while, and revival happened. Then he came back, and the revival was done. But he was a faithful pastor. He was a faithful Christian. And the majority of what we have is from what he wrote in these journal entries and what his friends wrote about him and what his church wrote about him and said about him. That he was a faithful man and that he loved God. He knew God. He communed with God. And so it shouldn't be surprising that a man that was that devoted to his Savior would write something like that. You'll find that quote on the sermon notes page in your bulletin rose early to seek God and found him whom my soul loveth. Who would not rise early to meet such company? As I think about a journal entry like that, it makes me think, do I view prayer as an opportunity to meet with God? Do you view prayer as an opportunity to meet with God? Because if you're anything like me, your times of prayerlessness demonstrate that you have a long way to go in understanding the fantastic privilege that it is to meet with God. Even when we do pray, we could look at our prayers and ask the question, what do our prayers say about what we think about prayer? What do our prayers tell us about what we think about God? If our journals were published, if our prayers were published, what would they say about what matters most to us? Prayer is one of the highest privileges of a Christian. We get to meet with God, and he wants to hear from us. But prayer is hard, and so we neglect to pray. Or if we do pray, we too often pray for the wrong reasons. But as hard as prayer can be, I have good news for you. We are not left in the dark. There is a strong chance that the passage that we will be looking at this morning from Matthew's gospel on the Lord's Prayer is known to you. This is where Jesus teaches his followers how to pray. This is a diversion from what we normally do. As you know, we typically work through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we just work through. This is kind of a, we've just dropped in to Matthew for one Sunday as we consider this priority that we've set forward as a church over this past year, that we want to grow as a praying church. And so as we think about these words, maybe you hear and see the words of the Lord's Prayer, and you grew up reciting them in school. Maybe you grew up reciting these words in your home. Maybe you grew up praying this prayer every Sunday in church. Or maybe you're here this morning and these words are entirely new to you. 
But in our passage, we see Jesus, the Son of God, say, pray then like this. And then he frames his argument by teaching his followers first how not to pray, and then he gives them the well-known example prayer. And so the big idea from the Lord's Prayer from Matthew's Gospel is this. Humble prayer is for God's glory and for our good. Humble prayer is for God's glory and for our good. So as we work through the passage this morning, I would encourage you to keep those thoughts in your mind. God's glory and our good. And so would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Again, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles over on the table that you can borrow or keep if you don't have a Bible. Um, But I'll be reading uh, Matthew 6, verses 5 to 15. Once you've found it in your Bibles, would you stand with me as I read from God's holy and true word? And when I finish reading, I will say, and I want you to think about these words, I will say this profound truth. This is God's word. This is God's word. And if you believe that remarkable statement to be true, I would encourage you to join me in saying out loud uh, when I finish reading, thanks be to God. And whether you've prayed this prayer or heard this prayer hundreds or even thousands of times or whether this is your first encounter this morning, my desire is that you would come away with a larger and sweeter vision of what it would mean for us to meet with God, to trust him, to meet with such company and find him whom our soul loves. Let's hear God's word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. Just to address the elephant in the room, as you heard me read the Lord's Prayer, you may have wondered... What happened to the end? What happened to the end of the Lord's Prayer? For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. 
That is in many uh, manuscripts that we have, but it is not in the oldest and most reliable uh, Greek manuscripts we have from Matthew's Gospel, so that's why it's not included in the text in front of me, but your Bibles may include it, or like your Bibles, it may be included in a footnote below. I want to encourage you, though, if you are familiar with those words, those are very true words. They are biblical in their core. Uh, you heard the call to worship, and I would encourage you to reflect on it later from First Chronicles eerily similar to those words. And so it is not wrong when you pray the Lord's Prayer to say those words. It is not wrong for us to even do that corporately. But I just want to address that and uh, make you aware that that's why we don't see it in our text, at least right in the main body of the text this morning. As we jump into the Lord's Prayer, we start with the first part where Jesus starts, uh, which is how not to pray how not to pray. You'll see that point in your bulletin, and I went wild this week. Look at all those subpoints. Uh, that's not like me, but there's a lot going on in the Lord's Prayer, and so there's some subpoints there, and we're going to have to move quickly because the Lord's Prayer is packed. We could do many part series on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we could write books on the Lord's Prayer. Many have, uh, and so I'd encourage you to let this be the, the spring of the diving board and dive more into the Lord's Prayer in your own study in quiet time this week. But we'll start by looking at how not to pray. And where does Jesus start? Well, we see, obviously, he, he addresses the hypocrites. But even before that, I want to look at an implicit uh, part of the Lord's Prayer. The first lesson we see of how not to pray is to simply not neglect to pray. Jesus assumes prayer. Three times in this passage, he says, and when you pray. When. Not if, when, and when you pray. And so for our first observation is that prayer is assumed. And so it feels a little bit silly to acknowledge that. But the first lesson we see, again, implicitly in the passage, is to simply pray. Don't neglect it. Just like giving and fasting, which is the Oreo cookie on either side of this section on prayer, you'll see these, these three sections, giving to the needy, the Lord's Prayer, and then fasting, each one there is an assumption that it is happening. Not if, but when. When you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast. And so this morning, as we consider that sandwich, and we consider specifically prayer, we can ask ourselves that question. Do we share that same conviction that prayer is assumed? Do we share that conviction as individual Christians? Do we share that conviction as families? Do we share that conviction as a church, that prayer is necessary, that we can't neglect to pray. And even if we do affirm that truth, do our lives demonstrate that we believe that truth? And so that's step one. I don't want to get the, the cart wildly before the horse and spend all of our time thinking about what prayer is if we are not praying. We need to pray. That's step one. There's no magic formula here. Set aside time, get some accountability, and simply pray like the puritans like to say i've said this before pray until you pray just start praying and keep praying until you start praying uh, it feels i don't know it feels like a bit of a paradox but that that's good advice don't wait for the stars to align just eliminate distractions and talk to god meet with him and by accountability i mean go to someone that you're in a discipling relationship with and simply say i have neglected prayer i want to grow in this Come talk to me after the service. I promise you, me telling you this and focusing on this implicit 
part of the Lord's Prayer that, that prayer is assumed is not me slinging mud of condemnation. Brother or sister, if you are in Christ, Jesus doesn't look at you with glaring eyes of condemnation, and neither will I. But we should still exhort one another to grow in this. I've told this story many times. And there was lots of lead up and lots of follow up. It's a bigger story than simply this. But one of the most loving things my wife Mariah ever did for me was to stare me right in the eyes in our kitchen and ask me if I was even praying, if I was even reading the Bible. We both knew I wasn't. And she did this not to crush me. She did this not to shame me. She did this because she loved me. And so I mean it, HGC, and I love you. Come talk to me or someone else. Send a text, shoot an email, give a call. There is no shame in confessing our desire to grow here. If anything, that posture of humility and self-awareness of our prayerlessness is exactly the posture that Jesus desires when he teaches us to pray. We'll see, you could have a prayer-saturated life, but pray for all the wrong reasons. That's one ditch to fall into. But prayerlessness is the other ditch. But thankfully, there's good news that we can pray, we can commune with God, and Jesus teaches us how. And so better than even going to me or to someone that you're in a discipling relationship with, go to God. Confess your prayerlessness. He already knows. He knows. And he doesn't love you any less. And so ask for his help. Don't neglect to pray. Don't leave here today without addressing this. But we see Jesus doesn't only, we're only two words in here, but Jesus doesn't only assume that prayer is happening. He also lays out where we can go wrong in prayer. And so our second lesson in how not to pray is don't show off. Don't show off. Look at verse five. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. We see repeatedly within the broader context of Matthew chapter six, we can do the right thing, like giving to the needy, like prayer, like fasting, with all the wrong motives. We see that acts of piety can unfortunately become cesspools of pride. The issue that Jesus is addressing here, that we'll consider more in a moment, is not specifically public versus private prayer, but rather the heart behind our prayers. Are we seeking God, or are we seeking the praise of man? As you know and have participated in already this morning, and maybe you're scratching your head wondering, we have various times of corporate prayer uh, here as a church, where we don't pray in secret, where we don't pray in private, we pray together corporately. Is this command here in the Lord's Prayer, this verse 5, is this saying that we shouldn't pray publicly? Is this saying that we shouldn't prepare or think about what we would do as we lead others in prayer? No. But it is a verse that should cause any of us who do pray in front of others to carefully consider if we are praying in a way that's seeking praise from others. To paraphrase Jesus, what's he saying here? He's saying don't show off. That's not the point of prayer. Praise from others cannot and certainly should not uh, be the purpose of prayer. 
If it is, that is just such a distortion of what prayer is. It is the opposite of that humble posture that prayer essentially demands. And Jesus immediately gives a contrasting example of this private prayer where uh, the heart is rightly focused where it needs to be. It says in verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, Jesus' point is not that secret prayer is more effective or more likely to be answered than public prayer. He is saying that that coming to pray in secret is how we can pray while guarding against the hypocrisy uh, that is praying for our own glory. So it's a good measuring stick for us to look at our own lives. Do Do we only pray in the presence of others? Do we only pray in public? Or do we pray in secret? Because again, Jesus, what he teaches here isn't a prohibition of public or corporate prayer. Jesus gives multiple examples where he does go and pray in solitude and other times where he prays where others can hear him. This example prayer that he's about to give uses uh, all plural pronouns. Our, us, we. And if it's true that we should only pray in private, Jesus' followers clearly missed this massive Thing in his teaching because throughout the book of Acts as we see the early church planted and beginning they are praying together not every once in a while but constantly if you want a couple hours of a good time read through the book of Acts and look for every time they pray it will shock you and so whether public or private we can consider some very practical things as we consider prayer first cultivate a robust private personal prayer life. This doesn't mean refusing to pray publicly until you have it all figured out, but don't allow public prayer to be your only times that you pray. Take Jesus' advice here. Find quiet, schedule time, and pray. God hears you. Second, we can and should be thoughtful in how and what we pray about when we pray with others. We need to guard against our pride. We need to guard against what we think about what others think about us. Right? When we pray together, though, we still there's an element of discipling. There's an element of teaching and instruction where we can help one another grow in our prayer lives. And so it is loving to be precise. It is loving to be thoughtful as we join together in corporate prayer. But all of this boils down to the question, am I showing off with this prayer? Or am I more concerned with what others think or what with God thinks of my prayer? Ask yourself these question, questions frequently and prayerfully ask God that he would reveal if there are places of pride in your own life, even in something as noble as prayer. So that's our first, uh, or our, we talked about not neglecting to pray. Uh, we talked about not showing off. And then here we see don't waste words. Verse 7, and when you pray... Do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't waste words. When Jesus talks here about the Gentiles, he's not making an ethnic point about those who are not Jewish. What he's saying specifically, as the word Gentile is used in many other places, is he's talking about those who don't know God, those who worship false gods. And we see examples throughout Scripture in these empty words and phrases, what that would look like. 
Uh, Trevor even referenced this this morning in his prayer of adoration. We see in 1 Kings 18 that the prophets of the false god Baal, they cry out to him all day for him to act. And of course, he never does. Another example we saw as we worked through the book of Acts last year is the riot in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. We see the crowd call out for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, that's dedication to just chant something for two hours straight. But those are empty words. They don't accomplish anything. And this is a good reason for us, too, to pause and consider our own prayer. Because God is not a genie who we summon with incantations. And God doesn't reward us for either long-winded prayers or prayers of extreme brevity. That's not the point of prayer. God cares about the heart. But just like our prayers can be a vain attempt to show off in front of others, sometimes we think that our words and our empty phrases are gaining more and more favor with God. But I love how Jesus follows this up in verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Isn't that a comforting thought? That God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, knows what you need before you ask him. We can try as hard as we want to pray, but sometimes you know all you can muster up is a God, help me. He doesn't fail to hear or answer simply because of our feeble efforts in prayer. If you don't feel like your language is slick enough, good news God doesn't care about your slick language. He doesn't need long, rambling prayers. He wants to hear from you. And so go to him with your praise. Go to him with your burdens and your sorrows. Go to him with your sins, your requests. And again, verse 7 is not a condemnation against earnest repetition or plain language. We see Jesus pray through the night. We see him going back in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying the same prayer over and over. So that's not obviously what we're seeing here. But this is a condemnation against mindless repetition. So guard yourself against thinking that the more grandiose your prayers are, the more likely they are to be heard, and the more likely they are to be answered. That's not the point of prayer. Thankfully, that's not the way God works. Go to God with humility because he knows what you need. And then Jesus exemplifies for us beautifully in the following few verses. He teaches those around him and us this morning how to pray, how to pray. I love these words. Pray then like this. These are sweet, sweet words. Jesus, the eternal son of God, who alone knows perfect communion with his father is opening the door to teach us how we can pray. We see his words as he goes on in verse 9, our Father. And we can pause there. We could spend endless days talking about how radical of a concept it is and significant it is to call God our Father. It would make sense for Jesus to call God Father. Maybe in his example prayer, he'd say, my Father, and we would have to say, well, that's what Jesus could say. We have to say something else. No, he says, our Father. He teaches his followers to pray then like this. He invites them to call on Yahweh, 
God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, and he invites them to call him Father. Now, it's not wrong. Again, we see examples in Scripture of uh, other ways that we can talk to God. We, it's not wrong to pray, Almighty God, or Dear Lord. But being able to address God as Father is an incredible privilege and teaches us something incredibly important about prayer. Uh, Dan quoted this uh, just a little while ago, but, and I've said it before, but I just can't get enough of it. Tim Keller, I saw it first in a tweet. I don't know if it's in a book somewhere, but he tweeted this one time. He said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. That's what we should think about when we pray our Father. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. When we pray, we don't have to go through channels. We don't get put on hold. We don't have to talk to God like he's a celebrity or someone in government. We are given access. Look at even a, a symbol picture in our own city. Look at our mayor. Mayors are essential. They are important. They do good work. But do you know there's an appropriate and, and formal way that you're supposed to address a mayor when you meet them? You're supposed to refer to them as your worship. That's how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to go, if you meet a mayor, you're supposed to say, oh, good morning, your worship. Who knew? I don't think they'd be personally offended if you didn't get the etiquette right. But I remember one time we had the mayor come visit us uh, at work, and, and we were told you have to call them your worship. I remember, what's that all about? What a title. Uh, that's, that's something else. But they may come to you and say, ah, just call me mayor so-and-so. Or they may even come and just say, just call me by my first name. You might think, wow, I'm on a first-name basis with the mayor of Kitchener. That is cool. You might even think that's a significant privilege. But that's calling your city mayor by their first name. That's cool. That's neat, right? You've kind of dropped down the hierarchy of what you're allowed to call them. But so much more than being on a first-name basis with the mayor of a city that no one beyond, uh, I don't know, couple hundred kilometers from here even though exists god invites you to call him father that's crazy our father that's good interestingly jesus doesn't uh, immediately spill into now we've gained access right now we've woken up the king said father hey he doesn't immediately spill into just asking god for stuff I think that's where we can go wrong we might have a good theology of prayer that we know god's our father he's adopted us as his children if we are in christ we may read ephesians 1 and the glorious truths in it and say yes god is my father i am his son or i am his daughter but then we immediately just spill into saying god what can you do for me what have you done for me lately but that's not what jesus does jesus goes straight into reverence and praise as we see that right away, praying prayers of praise. He models how to praise our heavenly king. He says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is not a word that we use frequently. At least, I don't use it frequently. Maybe you do. If you can use it in a sentence today, right on. Give it a shot. But hallowed is not a word that I use in my everyday vocabulary. But it is a great word, and it captures a lot. For something to be hallowed is for something to be kept holy, to be honored, to be set apart. And as we see 
throughout the Bible, this hallowing, this uh, for something to be kept holy is tied here with God's name. Hallowed be your name. Someone's name reflects who they are. In God's case, it captures all that he has revealed himself to be. And so we don't pray that God would become holy. He already is perfectly holy. We pray that his holiness would be on display and that we would treat his name, which is all that he is, as holy. With complete reverence. That he would be completely set apart. This is why we need to pray prayers of adoration, prayers of praise. God deserves it. He is worthy of our praise. But if you're like me, you'll find it's often a lot easier to thank God for what he's done than to praise him for who he is. And it's simple, but it's not easy. But we need to grow in knowing more about God so that when we meet with God, we praise him for who he is. Right? Get to know him through his word. Behold the glory of Christ and the amazing holiness of God. Remember his omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence. Every time you feel overwhelmed with too much to do or too much on your mind. Remember God's perfection and holiness every time you stumble and sin. In that same stumbling, in that same sin, be reminded of God's mercy and praise him for it. Every time you go to bed at night, remember that God doesn't need to sleep. Every time you look at someone or something beautiful in nature, stand in awe at the beauty of God's creation that displays his creativity, his handiwork. But prayers of praise can often be challenging because we have far too small of a view of God. And so I encourage you, grow in your view of God, and as your view grows, so will your love. And as your love grows, it will pour out of you. A little interesting story. Uh, a lot of you know, he's not here this morning, but Declan, my youngest son, fell asleep in the van yesterday. And he was, you know, how they sleep in cars with their neck all like that. And he was asleep. We got home. We had to wake him up. So we were like, hey, Declan, wake up. And he wakes up and he says, I love mommy. And that's just, that's, that's, that just poured out of him. You know, he's in a semi, you know, comatose state, and that's just what came out. I don't know if he was dreaming, but that just, it was so clear that that was what was on his mind. That was what was in his heart, and it just poured out of him. Let our praise be what pours out of us as we get to know God through his word. And so take Jesus' advice. Praise God for who he is. Then we see Jesus moves on to prayers of petition. Staying very much in this God-focused realm of prayer, Jesus moves on to petition, which is a fancy word for asking God to act. Like you see verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are big and bold prayers. We'll see in a minute how God is very much okay with us coming to him with our daily needs and the small things. But first, Jesus models praying that God would work for his glory. There aren't many grander prayers that you could pray. To pray that God's kingdom would come is to affirm his kingship. Sounds obvious, but it's, we often neglect this type of prayer. It's to pray that his rule and reign would expand and that God would work in God's way for God's glory. We're asking that he would call more people into right relationship with him. We are asking that Christ would build his church. Similarly, to pray that God's will would be done is to call on him to act as he sees fit. To act in ways that bring him 
more glory. And so a good question to ask, as we do with each line here, is do my prayers look like this? Or if I'm honest, is it a lot easier for me to pray that my kingdom would come and that my will would be done? The lesson here is that we should pray that God would act in whatever way he sees fit. This kind of prayer demands humility. Because a lot of times what we think our kingdom growing is is different than God's kingdom. Where our priorities are are not God's priorities. We hope and pray that we'll grow, that they would become more like that. That our will would be aligned with God's will. That's a scary prayer to pray. That God's kingdom would come. That God's will would be done. It shouldn't be. It should be the best thing we could ever pray. But as sinful people, it can be a hard prayer to pray. And so we, again, know that it's not wrong to pray that God would work directly in our lives and in the lives of others in the smallest ways. But we don't often need help praying those kinds of prayers. It usually comes far more natural for us to to go to God and ask him to help us than to go to him and mean it, that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done. It's good to pray for Aunt Thelma's, you know, swollen big toe. That's a good prayer. But we pray those prayers a lot, and we often fail to pray that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done. And so what are some ways that you could pray to that end locally? What are some ways that you could pray that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done in and through the church? What about our church? What about other churches? What about around the world? These truths can be hard to grapple with, but to neglect them is to miss out on so much of what prayer is, petitioning God to work for his glory. Prayer is so much more than a laundry list of needs, asking for stuff. It is so much bigger. But then we see the, the lens tightens right in. There's a big zoom in that happens here as we consider prayers of supplication. Because Jesus doesn't stop with the big grand prayers. That's not the only way to pray. That lens zooms in and we see this prayer of supplication. Another fancy word that's saying God would supply all of our needs. And this begins to put meat on the bones of what it really means for us to have access to God, our Father. Look with me at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. We can understand. The words are simple here, but we may have trouble applying these words to our our own life. But if we think about the original hearers, uh, it was an agrarian society. To have food was to have life. To be without your daily bread was to be dead. And so, of course, we need food, too, to live. So we can understand the concept. But to pray for daily bread would have held a lot more weight, I think, to Jesus' original hearers here than it likely does to most of us. Most of us don't need to worry about where our food is coming from today, right? Or where tomorrow's food will be coming from. But that's simply not the case in many places in the world even today, and it certainly wasn't the case for the people that Jesus was speaking to. For us, the American dream or the Canadian dream is that we would cultivate such a life where this prayer would become unnecessary. That's our mission, I want to get to a place in life where I'm so secure, I'm so solid that this prayer, we could just, you know, strike it out of our Bible. 
what a foolish way of thinking. Because we like to think that we can take, of our own, take care of our own daily bread. But here Jesus is saying that we must go to God and ask him for our most basic and provisional need. There's so much more captured here in simply daily bread. This is just the most basic thing you could possibly ask for. Give us today what I need to stay alive. Do we pray those kinds of prayers? Right? Now this doesn't mean you could misapply this and say, I'm going to quit my job. Bread's going to fall from heaven. That's, that's, my, that's what I'm going to do. That would be a misapplication. Okay, But I imagine most of us need to learn a lesson or two about trusting that God will provide for us. This could be diagnostic in so many ways. Maybe it demonstrates, you know, in some way it's indicative of the fact that we are unwilling to give sacrificially. We won't put ourselves in a position where we actually need anything from God because we provide it all for ourselves. And so this afternoon, I would encourage you, read the whole chapter, Matthew chapter 6, read the whole chapter, and you'll see that Jesus says later, not to be anxious, but to seek first God's kingdom, and that God will take care of everything else. And ask yourself the question, what needs to change in my life to seek first God's kingdom? What is stopping me from living that way, in line with Jesus' teaching here? Right? There seems to be something so utterly foreign from the Bible of this cultivating a life where we don't need God to provide for us. Trust him. Trust him enough to know that he will take care of your needs. He will take care of every practical and provisional need, no matter where he calls you or what he calls you to give up. Because God cares for you like this. Remember, he already knows exactly what you need. And then we see that need is more even than daily bread. What we need to stay alive as a human as he moves into a prayer of confession. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. More than any need we have, more than our most basic provisional need, more than the bread we need to even stay alive, we desperately need to be forgiven. And more shocking than asking the king of the universe for a, a proverbial glass of water is to wake him up and say, I have rebelled against you. I have, I have, you know, I don't know what you could bridge that metaphor to a child waking up the king, but I've smashed, you know, your crown. I have destroyed everything. I have burned the castle down. I have rebelled against you completely. And shockingly, to confess our sin to God is to know amazing freedom it is to know how amazingly loved we are because he's not just willing to take care of our temporal needs he's willing to take care of our biggest need which is our sin we can say with confidence that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus that's a powerful truth but just because we are forgiven does not mean that we stop sinning. That we, when we become a Christian, we confess our sins one time and we're good to go. We've, we've had the slate cleaned and we'll just cruise in this perfect level of sanctification for the rest of our life. We know that we still sin. In John's first letter, he talks about how if we say we don't sin, we are a liar. And so we need to not neglect coming to God and confessing our sin. We need to understand that confession is not a downer. It is a privilege. We must remember that God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. 
And it can be hard to reflect on our sin. Our sin should grieve us. But to neglect confession of sin in both private and with one another, as James urges us to do in James chapter 5, is to neglect the incredible privilege that it is to be a forgiven sinner. To again have that slate wiped clean. We rehearse the gospel every time we come back to God with our sin. Because one day we will stand before God. And for those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, rather than facing the punishment that we deserve, we can hear the words, I've forgiven you. I've forgiven you. And every time we sin, which is far too often, probably already today, we can come to God again with the heavy burden of sin and experience the joy of confession knowing that that heavy burden is carried by someone else. It's the ultimate joy to be a forgiven sinner. And then Jesus adds an important part. As we have forgiven our debtors, I like the first part of that verse a lot more than the second part. The second part's really hard. And this is the one part in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus goes on to explain. He doesn't give much more elaboration in the other sections. They kind of speak for themselves. But in verses 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Those are sobering words. And this highlights the hypocrisy that can live within us. Not just to stand up and pray in a way that we want all the glory, we want all the attention, but in a way that we want forgiveness but aren't even willing to to return the favor to others. But when we fail to forgive, it begs the question, do we even understand God's holiness? Do we even understand our sin? Do we even understand the great news of the gospel? As Josiah read earlier in our assurance of forgiveness after our prayer of confession, Convicting, convicting verse from Ephesians chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's such good news, but such a gut punch at the same time. But as forgiven people, we should be the best equipped to forgive. But too often we fail to do that. And I know this is hard. I'm not... Again, saying this to sling stones. I know this is hard. But we need to, as Christians, we need to be willing to consider the fact, what if God treated me the way I treated other people? That's a tragic thing to think about. But it should help us to grow in our love for other people, our willingness to forgive others. We need to stare at the cross long enough to feel the beautiful freedom of forgiveness And to pray that God would help us extend that forgiveness to others as well. That's what Jesus is teaching in this Lord's Prayer. And then we see finally to pray prayers of deliverance. Again, so much could be said on this section alone. But in verse 13, it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now we can know with confidence that God does not tempt us to sin. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. James chapter 1 makes this point very clear that God will not tempt us to sin. But what is Jesus saying here? Well, it helps us to understand a little bit what the word here is implying. It can, like it sounds, mean exactly that, uh, temptation to sin. But it also can mean to be tested. 
And either way, it's appropriate for us to ask for God's help in either of these circumstances. That God would help us and deliver us from from testing and that God would deliver us from the temptation that we know because we are sinful. But I love how R.T. France, one New Testament scholar, helps us make sense of this. He writes this. First, uh, as he's considering these things, a a negative request doesn't necessarily imply that the positive is otherwise to be expected. A husband who says to his wife, don't ever leave me, is not necessarily assuming that she is likely to do so. Secondly, the word used here is not in itself always to be understood as a bad thing. It was, after all, the Holy Spirit who took Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. So it's important that when we read this section and lead us not into temptation, that we shouldn't fill in the gaps and read between the lines unnecessarily to say, well, that must mean that God is tempting us. But we see right after what what follows this, Jesus is instructing us to call on God for help, to say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We know you won't tempt us. Deliver us from evil. We should call on God who makes a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10. We should call on him who gives us his armor to wear in a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6. But as we see this whole prayer, praise, petition, supplication, confession, deliverance, all these things, all of this, every single component demands humility. Every single component demands humility. To pray is to be humble. If we're arrogant in our prayer if we that's just simply not prayer right to pray to praise god to ask that his kingdom would come that his will would be done to ask him to provide for our most basic daily needs to confess our sin to be willing to forgive others to ask god to guard us and deliver us is to acknowledge how great god is and how great we are not this humility is the best news of jesus example of prayer in matthew chapter 6 Because to pray this kind of humble prayer wasn't below Jesus, not only in his example, but also in another time when Jesus prayed that we consider often here, where he called out to God in agony at the prospect of the weight of the world's sin falling on his shoulders, knowing that he would die a horrific death on a Roman cross, but again, more than the physical torture and pain was the weight of the world's sin falling on him who was, in fact, sinless. But Jesus' greatest desire is that God would be glorified, that his name would be hallowed. He knew what it meant for God's kingdom to come. He knew the instrumental part that he played in God's kingdom coming, that he would die for the sins of those who would trust in him. He knew that he would provide more than daily bread through what he was about to do. He knew that he was, in fact, to use his words, the bread of life. He knew that through his sacrifice and his substitution, he would make a way for us to be able to freely confess our sin. To not have to atone for our sin in another way because he was the perfect atonement. He knew that all sin would fall on him. And he asked God to deliver him from the cup of wrath that he was about to drink. He modeled this prayer by going to the cross. Because just because he knew all of this, he knew all these factors, he demonstrated his humility perfectly. What did he say? He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. 
Jesus went to the cross to take our place, to free us from sin, to make all that he teaches us to pray even possible. If it weren't for the cross, this prayer, we could not pray it. But it's good news for so many reasons. And so, church, let's throw off our prayerlessness. Let's throw off our showing off. Let's throw off our empty phrases and humbly follow Christ's example and instruction in prayer, grounded in the hope that Jesus' humility accomplished everything we could ever need and more. It's Jesus' humility that took him to the cross. It's Jesus' humility that allows him to mediate between God and man. It's how and why, more than a ritual, we pray in Jesus' name. Every time we pray, we think about that. And so to close, I'm just going to read a well-known passage from Philippians chapter 2. It just shows us beautifully the humility of Christ and what he accomplished for us. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your Son, in whose name we pray. God, we thank you for the privilege it is to come to you as our Father. We thank you for what was accomplished for us on the cross. We pray that you would help us to praise you, to come to you, ask these prayers of petition that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done to be humble enough to come to you and ask you to provide for our daily needs, to come to you with our biggest need, which is our sin, and to ask that you would deliver us. God, you are good. You are the king. And we need you. We thank you that you've provided all that we need in Christ we pray that as we reflect on these truths, as we share in the Lord's Supper, we would again commune with Christ in a new and fresh way as we commune with one another. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.